Take your Bibles and turn them with me to Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3. When you, uh, when you think of Christmas, what are, what are the things that come into your mind? You know, some people think of festive celebrations, <clears throat> presents, uh, good times with friends and family, uh, praising God through hymns and carols, uh, peace on earth and goodwill to men and all those sorts of things. Out of all of the different thoughts uh, that people associate with Christmas, Almost no one associates Christmas with violent warfare. Yeah, that's exactly what Christmas is all about. Now, uh, a few months ago, Jared and I were kicking around ideas for an Advent Christmas series, and out of those conversations came this notion that those cute, cuddly nativity sets that we love so much are just not accurate. Now, I'm not talking about how the wise men actually weren't there on the night that Jesus was born. You can keep the wise men in your nativity set if you want. Uh, But to portray the essence of Christmas more accurately, I'm beginning to think that we should not take something out, but put something in to our nativity sets. In addition to Mary and Joseph and the shepherds and a few animals and uh, and a cuddly baby Jesus, we also need to put in that nativity scene a figure of a humongous winged serpent, a dragon, neck bent down over that manger, mouth full of dagger-sharp teeth open wide, inches away from that baby, ready to consume that baby. Now, that version of the nativity probably wouldn't be a bestseller in stores this holiday season, but as I was pondering this sermon series, I I could not shake from my mind the notion of warfare and the biblical motif of, of crafty, threatening, ravaging beast in opposition to God and God's people. In Genesis 3 today, we're going to meet a serpent. Next week, we're going to look at Daniel 7 which portrays the evil kingdoms of man as horrifying beasts. Later on in this series, we're going to look at Revelation chapter 12, where you read about this fearsome dragon, and some of you are thinking, this is going to be the strangest Christmas series I've ever heard. And that might be true. But I also pray that it will be one of the most encouraging Christmas sermon series that you've ever heard, because the other motif in the Bible is the victory of Christ over the beasts over the dark forces of evil, visible and invisible, that oppose God and threaten to devour God's people, which is why this sermon series is entitled Christus Victor, which is Latin for Christ the Victor or Christ the Conqueror. And for the next five Sundays, we're going to look at different aspects of the struggle between Christ and the powers while celebrating Christ's victory over them, because that's the essence of Christmas. The Apostle John says as much as this as, as uh, he writes in 1 John 3, 8, that the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. And so as we begin a Christmas series, it's appropriate to go back to the very beginning of the Christmas story, which is not Bethlehem, but a garden. 
It is, it is in the garden where the devil begins the works that Jesus came to destroy. And so you will not fully understand Christmas until you understand what is happening in Genesis chapter 3. Now, just by way of context, in Genesis chapter 1 and 2, God creates the world and everything in it, and he creates everything good. There is no sorrow or suffering or death. And the capstone of God's good creation is man. And from the beginning, God desired to have a people set apart for himself that would love and trust and enjoy and glorify him forever. And so God made Adam and Eve and his image morally perfect, morally pure, and morally righteous as they, as they imaged or reflected the goodness of God to the world. And together, they, they were to rule the world under God's headship having authority and dominion over all the beasts of the earth. <clears throat> and it is in this context where God tells the man and the woman that they're free to eat from any of the trees in the garden except for the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. If they eat from that tree, they will surely die. It's the only restriction that they have. And so what you have then is a world that is in total peace and harmony. Adam and Eve were in perfect relationship and fellowship with God and with one another. Even creation itself was in harmony. Uh, no earthquakes, no tornadoes, no floods destroying the earth. Everything was in perfect order until the war began. So with that backdrop, please stand with me now out of honor and reverence for the reading of the precious and perfect words of our God. We're in Genesis chapter 3. We're going to start at the beginning of the chapter and read all the way down through the end. Hear the word of the Lord. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God has made, had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took, it, took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave so, some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. He said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruits of the tree and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, 
and between your offspring and her offspring, he shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. The man called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skin and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man at the east of the garden of Eden. He placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your holy and inspired word. Father, I'm concerned that one of the difficulties this morning is that for many people, this text is very, very familiar. And sometimes that can be a challenge to, to preach it and sometimes a challenge to hear it when we hear very familiar text. Father, I pray this morning that you would speak afresh to us through this very important word, uh, that your Holy Spirit would illuminate the text, and that we would hear your voice, that we would believe, that we would walk away encouraged, and most importantly, that we would walk away seeing your Son, Jesus Christ, glorified and exalted. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Got a little bit of a dry throat this morning. I'm not sick. Don't worry. Don't freak out. Uh, But dry throat, drinking a lot of water. uh, Hopefully, it's not going to be a distraction to you. One more clearing of the throat. throat) Hopefully, that'll be a last time. Probably not. All right. So, there are four stages to the conflict in in the garden that we see here in Genesis 3. And the first is the beast invasion. The beast invasion. Text says, now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. Now, we learn from other Bible passages that the serpent is none other than Satan, the devil himself. Now, whether he took over an actual serpent or he just appeared as a serpent, that's not really important to me. What is important is that an evil being has invaded God's good creation. Now, much of the devil's origins are shrouded in mystery. The Bible doesn't reveal much about that. Uh, what we do know is that he is an angel, wants good, but at some point he rebelled and seduced many other angels to his revolutionary cause. Isaiah 14 is part of a prophetic oracle against the king of Babylon. Uh, that's the evil empire that, that opposed God and, and oppressed God's people. This oracle is clearly about an arrogant human ruler, but there are many who see this also as a poetical allusion to the fall of Satan because the language in verses 12 through 15 of Isaiah 14 goes far beyond what we would expect of just merely a human leader. And so, for example, Isaiah writes, how you are fallen from heaven, O day star, son of dawn. 
You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven above the stars of God. I will set my throne on high. I will sit on the mount of assembly in the far reaches of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. Consider the ambition of this person. Consider those five I will statements. I will ascend to heaven above the stars of God. I will set my throne on high. I will sit on the mount of assembly in the north. By the way, in Canaanite mythology, the gods sat in assembly on a northern mountain. But being greater than fake pagan gods is not enough. This being has cast his greedy, lustful, covetous eyes on still greater things. He says, I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. That's Yahweh. That's the one true God. Now, regardless of how you interpret Isaiah 14, if that spirit and attitude can be expressed by a human ruler under Satan's influence, how much more must this reflect the sentiments of Satan himself being more evil and corrupted than even the king of Babylon? Now, the serpent would have been among the creatures made in those prior chapters in Genesis, in Genesis 1 and 2. Uh, The serpent would have been a part of that good creation, something not inherently evil. And so, the entrance of evil into the world is meant here to be seen as an intrusion, as an invasion, not as something that has always existed, but something that comes after God has made everything. Now, that runs contrary to the philosophy of dualism. You know what dualism is? It's it's the idea that from eternity past, there has always been evil and there's always been good, and both sides are kind of relatively equal, and you have the light side and the dark side, they've been eternally kind of slugging it out forever, and will continue forever. That's dualism. Bible doesn't teach that, and that's important to know because many people see Satan as some sort of dark version of God, but on his level. It's not true. Genesis 3 paints a picture of the serpent as simply part of the created order. Text says he was made. He is inferior to and under the sovereignty of the creator. Evil is not all-powerful, and evil is not eternal, but it is dangerously parasitic. Again, Satan was a good angel gone bad. Genesis 3 tells the story of a good world gone bad and of good people gone bad. Evil, like a parasite, has no life in and of itself. It latches on to that which is good, seeking to twist it and pervert it. That means that humanity and the world as it is today are not in a natural state. It's in an unnatural condition. Sin has polluted and spoiled the perfection of creation. And so we have the beast introduction here, an invasion. And next we see the beast attack. The beast's attack. If the Son of God has come to destroy the works of the devil, Genesis 3 shows us what those works are. And in a nutshell, the work of the devil is death. And sin is a means to death. John says, or Jesus says in John chapter 8, that the devil was a murderer from the beginning. And there are three things that the devil does to kill Adam and Eve. And these three things are still the main ways that Satan destroys today. So be on guard. First thing he does is he casts doubt on God's word. He casts doubt on God's word. Again, look at verse 1. He said to the woman, Did God actually say... 
Now, from the first two chapters of Genesis, we learn that God's Word is powerful and reliable and good, bringing forth life and blessing. Uh, to, To live in accordance with God's Word is to live in safety and in freedom from death. When God says to Adam, you shall not eat or you shall eat from all the trees, but not this tree lest you die, that's not merely some arbitrary rule. That's saying that life and death is bound up in my word, and to heed the word brings life and blessing, and to disregard the word brings death and curse. So it should not be a shock that one of Satan's chief strategies to kill us is to attack our confidence in the word of God. Serpent says, did God actually say this? The serpent is leading Eve to question not simply the content of God's word, but the wisdom of it. Really, Eve? Is that indeed what God has said? Surely not. Surely not. That doesn't make any sense. Come on now, Eve. Be reasonable. Now, the devil continues to attack in the exact same way today. Did God really say this or that? In his word? Really? Do you you really believe this? Do do you really believe that God has said, uh, for example, that that marriage is exclusively between one man and one woman? You've got to be kidding. How can you be so backwards, so unsophisticated as just to blindly believe what God says? Uh, We're in the 21st century after all. We've been enlightened by science. You just can't believe in some some dusty, antiquated book. Has God really said that Jesus Christ is the only way to salvation? Surely not. Surely not. Please don't tell me that that is what God has said. How intolerant. Over and over again, the serpent continues to speak this way about the word of God. There may even be some of you here right now. You're listening to this, and you're tempted to think, I don't know about this. Uh, Some some of you may be thinking, I've gone to church my whole life. My parents parents have raised me to believe this stuff. But what I'm hearing outside the church walls, that seems to make much more sense to me, and I like that better. Friends, if you have those kinds of thoughts in your head, it is the hiss of the serpent, and he has murder on his mind. Because he knows that if he can destroy your confidence in the Word of God, if he can destroy your confidence in the Bible, you're dead. You're dead. Friends, it doesn't take you becoming an atheist. It doesn't take you ruining your life with drugs or sexual immorality or indulging in whatever you think are extreme sins for the devil to kill you. All you have to do is disbelieve his word. It's exactly why Jesus says later on, everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell, and great was the fall of it. To disregard the Word of God is the prelude to a mighty collapse, to destruction and ruin. Well, 
In addition to casting doubt on God's word, the second thing the serpent does is downplay God's generosity and kindness and goodness. He says, uh, again in verse 1, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Notice there's a distortion there in, in, in God's word. Did God really say, you shall not eat of any tree of the garden? Is that what God actually said? No, God, God actually said the opposite. You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, Genesis 2, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. And so we must consider the serpent's question against the backdrop of all of Genesis chapter 2, which focuses on the incredible goodness and kindness and generosity of God. He has lavishly poured out an overflowing bounty of provision on Adam and Eve in the garden. And yet the serpent in his craftiness, is leading Eve down a path. He's guiding the conversation away from God's goodness, away from God's abundant provision and kindness. He does not want Eve focusing on that. He wants her attention fixed on the restriction. And Eve is following his lead. Because while she does counter Satan by saying that they can eat from many trees in the garden, then she says... You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it. Did you catch the exaggeration? God never said anything about not touching the tree. Eve is falling into the serpent's trap and and is making God seem more restrictive than he actually is. The, the, The focus of the conversation here is never on the lavish, gracious generosity of God and how much he's given them. And in this way, the serpent is is cleverly leading Eve away from a place of thanksgiving to a place of discontent, and that continues to be his tactic today. I wonder if any of you are falling for the serpent's attack right now. We just had Thanksgiving. How thankful of a day was it for you? God has, has blessed you and has done so much in your life. He's given every single person in this room so much to be thankful for. And yet sometimes we focus on the thing that we cannot have more than we enjoy and praise God for the things that we do have. You know, I, I, I was engaged in massive spiritual warfare this week myself. Lots of temptation coming on me. Thanksgiving week of all weeks, uh, just, just struggling with with, with things that have been going on in my life and the, and the trials that, that my wife and I have been going through for the past five years or so, and just pray, praying for relief and praying for, for healing and, and, and praying for a change, and, and it doesn't come, and it's just really easy to just kind of get sucked into that, that, that dark place where all you're thinking about is this thing that you want and you cannot have, and it kind of shuts out the, the millions of blessings and, and wonderful things that God has done. It was, it was a struggle for me this week, and God had to pull me out of it, and honestly, working on this sermon has helped <laughs> with that. Sometimes we are bitter and depressed and angry about those things that God is withholding from us, and we begin to believe that God is not kind, but that He is overly restrictive, and that attitude pushes out thanksgiving and gratefulness. And when that happens, be warned. When that happens, we've given the devil a powerful foothold in our lives. Folks, this is, this is a big deal. A lack of thanksgiving is the doorway to idolatry. 
It's the doorway to, to worshiping false gods. As Paul writes in Romans chapter 1, for although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, they exchanged the truth about God for a lie. And what's the lie? The lie is that there is something better for you than what God has for you. And if He's not going to provide it, then you need to get it yourself. So step one in the beast's destructive plan to kill is first casting doubt on God's faithfulness and, and God's Word. Step two, downplaying God's generosity and kindness. And then step three, denying God's judgment and God's sufficiency. Look at verse 4, the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. Isn't it interesting that the first doctrine to be blatantly denied in recorded history is the doctrine of judgment, and that bold denial continues today. The, the serpent's seductive voice hissing, you shall not surely die, rings as loud as ever in the hearts and minds of people everywhere. The modern world hates and despises the doctrine of God's judgment, hates and despises the doctrine of hell. It's something to, to be lampooned and made fun of or softened or just plain avoided. Churches won't, churches won't talk about hell because it's uncomfortable. It scares people away. Well, Jesus is all about accepting people and, and not judging, people say. And yet, folks, it is Jesus himself who says that if you disregard him and his word, then you must depart from him and go where? Into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. That is not Deemer Webb talking, that is Jesus Christ. The serpent conceals the judgment from Eve. Why? Because he wants her dead. He wants her dead. If God's word isn't reliable, if he's stingy and restrictive, uh, if there's really nothing to be thankful for, <clears throat> and if there's really no serious accountability for going against him, then why not rebel? Why not? But notice what else Satan does. He wants Eve to think that sinning against God will not only not lead to something bad happening, but it will also lead to something good happening. Verse 5, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Now, the tragedy here is that Eve is already like God. She was more like God than any of us in this room. As a sinless image bearer, she reflected the beauty and holiness and goodness and integrity of God perfectly. Any perfect people in this room? But the gist of Satan's temptation is to ascend to the heights of Godhood itself, to be on God's level. Sound familiar? Isaiah 14, I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the Most High. There is something that is so seductive and alluring about that. And the serpent is insinuating to Eve that God is holding back from you something that is actually for your good. You were made for glory, Eve, and God is, is threatened by what you can be. He is holding you back. He is denying you the thing that should be yours. 
Friends, do you know what the name Satan means? It means accuser. Now, usually we think about that in terms of Satan accusing us. But the beginning of Satan's accusations in the Bible are actually leveled against God himself. He is insinuating a number of things there. Uh, He's insinuating that God is not as good as you think he is. And more than that, and this is so blasphemous, it's an attack here on the sufficiency of God. It's the idea that that a relationship with God is not enough to satisfy you and give you what you need, Eve. You must reach past God and grab something else to fully have life and pleasure and satisfaction. And friend, every time, every time you are tempted to sin, and I don't care if it's a temptation to pride or porn, or temptation to anger, or anxiety. At the core of the temptation is the sufficiency of God, is is His Word and His ways and His very being sufficient for all of your needs. And whenever you and I sin against God, we answer that question with a resounding no. When's the last time you sinned? I mean, if you're you're honest, I'm sure many of you are thinking, well, maybe about five minutes ago or this this morning. Every time you sin, it is an attack on the sufficiency of God in your life. And in that moment, you're not believing that He is sufficient for you. It's that simple. I'm speaking as a, not as one who has it all together, but as a very experienced sinner. I know how this works. Unfortunately, I've done it a lot. In that moment, we declare that God is insufficient. Maybe maybe God is what I need most of the time, but not right now. Not in this moment. And you click on that internet site or whatever else you do. At the root of the test of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, (laughs) this is not about like fruit, like this is like magic fruit or poisonous fruit or what. Don't, don't think that. At the root of the test is whether or not Adam and Eve will trust what God says is good and evil or whether they themselves will abandon the wisdom of God and they try to determine what is good and what is evil apart from God. That's, that's the issue. Do, do I trust What God says is good and and bad, or am I going to make that decision myself according to my wisdom and what I think? Because I've got a better idea about how the universe should run than God does. Friends, Genesis 3 is not simply about breaking a rule. It's about revolution. It's about the attitude that says, I don't want God to be at the center I want to be at the center. I must meet my needs. I must be the determiner of right and wrong. I must be the self-sufficient one. And and that is totally following in the devil's footsteps. Friends, it it is daring to lay hold of the throne of God and sit in its seats. This is at the core of the temptation. 
to be God. Whenever you fall into temptation and sin, it's, it's, not, it's not an issue about addiction or bad habits or how you were raised. Ultimately, it's a worship issue. To be God is at the core of the temptation, but in, an, in, in the attempt to be God, guess what? You become like the devil. Well, Eve is tantalized by the possibilities. She, she really believes this is what she needs, so she eats, and then she gives some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Aha! Only now do we find out that Adam was here the whole time which is one of the saddest and most pathetic parts of this story. Adam was supposed to be the spiritual leader. He was supposed to be the protector of his bride. Eve was conversing with and being ensnared by the beast. She was a damsel in distress. Adam should have violently laid hold of the serpent and crushed it. Instead, he allows Eve to be charmed by the serpent's lies, which makes me think that on the one hand, he was just as allured by the serpent as she, but on the other hand, Scripture lays the greater sin on Adam because the Scripture says later that Eve was deceived and Adam was not. In other words, Adam had more of an awareness of the magnitude of what was happening, and he let it happen. He wanted to be God, but he was cowardly, and he let his wife take the lead in the rebellion. And in that, Adam has totally failed himself, his wife, and his God. Genesis 2.25, we didn't read this earlier, but Genesis 2.25 says that before sin, they were naked and had no shame. No shame. Nothing to hide. Can you imagine that? Have nothing to hide. No, no, No skeletons in your closet. Somebody can just know you absolutely completely, and you're, and you're cool with that. Every single little thought you have in your head, whatever it might be, no shame. But now that they have sinned, Genesis 3 verse 7 says that they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. You see, now that they have sinned, guilt and shame come. Desire to cover up comes. A desire to hide comes. That's not the only thing that comes. Also what comes is death. Whereas the garden was full of life and joy, Adam's failure has unleashed pain and death. And so sin, like a spiritual virus, has corrupted all of creation. This is more dangerous than COVID. Romans 5.12, the Apostle Paul writes, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men, because all sinned. Death comes in various ways. Before Genesis 3, the man and the woman were at peace with God. They, they, from Him, they received spiritual life and vitality. They were able to, to be holy and live a perfectly righteous life and enjoy perfect fellowship with God, but no more. They become unholy and corrupt sinners, disconnected from God. Their desires now are bent away from God and towards other things. Verse 8 says that they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden, and they hid themselves from the presence of God. They want, they want nothing to do with God. And they, they actually think that they can hide from God. 
And in hiding, they now view God not as a friend, but as an enemy. When God asks if he's eaten from the forbidden tree, and by the way, God never asks anyone a question because he's ignorant, because he doesn't know the answer. God knows everything. Whenever God asks a question in the Bible, pay very close attention. God, God, God is up to something. And here, obviously, the motive is to lead Adam to repentance and confession. So he asked Adam about what happened. And Adam responds in verse 12, I'm so sorry, God, I've sinned. I've rebelled against you. I failed you. I failed my wife. I failed everybody. Please forgive me. I repent in dust and ashes. Is that what Adam does? Adam says, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree and I ate. It's the first incident of blame shifting in the Bible. The corrupted sinner always sees himself as more righteous than he actually is, and certainly more righteous than other sinners. You know how it works. You know you're a sinner. You would never say that you're perfect, but you, but you may think you're better than the other guy. <laughs> well, at least I'm not doing that. That's how it works. We're so self-righteous in our sin. And Adam blames Eve. He sees Eve as the worst sinner. And, and what he does in this moment is utterly despicable. Adam, as the husband and spiritual leader, is supposed to provide for and protect and love Eve, and instead he tries to save his own skin by sacrificing her. <laughs> Remember what God said, you do this, you die. And so, in essence, Adam is saying, if you judge anyone God, kill her. It's perverted. And it's the beginning of a long and twisted history of humans selfishly caring more about themselves than about others. But Adam also, Eve is not, uh, Eve is not the only one in Adam's crosshairs. Adam blames somebody else. Adam blames God. He says, the woman whom you gave to be with me. Adam lashes out at his wife. Adam lashes out at his God. And so death has come in man's relationship with God and with man's relationship with fellow man. And if a snake could smile, it would have. The blame shifting continues in verse 13. The woman says, the serpent deceived me and I ate. Now, that's true. But there's no humility. There's no brokenness over sin. She just blames the devil. It's a really sad situation. The beauty and the intimacy of the garden is replaced by guilt and self-centeredness and isolation. You have God, Adam, and Eve all in the same place and yet all cut off from one another because of sin. That's the predicament not just of Adam and Eve, but of all men and women. Paul writes in Romans 5 that by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. Adam's guilt was transferred to us as well as Adam's nature. We all follow in Adam's footsteps, and so all men left to themselves are in a state of death. Don't, don't, don't do the self-righteous thing that Adam did. Don't read this and say, well, at least I'm not like Adam. Apart from the grace of God, we are all exactly like Adam, and we walk as Adam walked. 
But the next thing that we see now to all of this is the Lord's response. The Lord's response. So we have the beast invasion, the beast attack, and now the Lord's response. The Lord's response is exactly what the serpent was counting on. Judgment. Judgment. In verse 16, God decrees pain and childbearing. The bringing forth of life is a a wonderful time of celebration, but the pain and toil associated with it is a constant reminder of the curse of sin that continues from generation to generation. God says to Eve, your desire will be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. In other words, the the harmonious, other-centered relationship in the garden is now corrupted and perverted by sin. She will attempt to control him and, and, and manipulate him and put herself above him and fight against his leadership. He will seek to control her by, by wicked and cruel, harsh domination, both no longer seeking the best interest of the other, but instead using the other to meet their own self-centered ends. And that, by the way, tells the story of millions of marriages for thousands of years. Welcome to a sinful world. Welcome to thinking that, that your way is better than God's way. How do you like it now? And the sad irony, here's the sad irony. The sad irony is that in trying to ascend to Godhood, to become greater than they were, guess what happens? They end up falling and becoming less. They're still humans, yes, they're, they're still made in the image of God, but now that image is warped and twisted Adam and Eve were indeed made for glory, but not their own, but God's. But now, sadly, they are further from that than they ever have been. And so, men and women now are self-centered and violent and lying and unjust and greedy and lustful, and so have fallen dreadfully short of the glory of what they were made to be. Listen to this. And seeking to be more like God... Man has become more beastly, more like the beast who hunted them down and destroyed them. In seeking to become like God in in their sin and rebellion, man now has slipped and become less human. In verse 17, God curses the ground. He says to Adam, in pain you shall eat of it, thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. That's interesting. Adam falls, but, but Adam, as, 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 the, as the ruler of creation, when he falls, creation falls with him. The, the corruption of sin, the, the death that has come in the world, the curse, has even affected nature as creation itself resists Adam's attempts to subjugate it. Verse 19, by the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust. And to dust you shall return. So the final physical judgment for sin is physical death. The curse really is a reversal of creation, isn't it? Adam was taken from the dust, and now that's turned backwards. As Adam will grow old and weak and die and return to the ground. So you could say that, that, that in the beginning you had creation, but now with the curse you have uncreation. The end of the chapter finds Adam and Eve, heads hung low, banished from the paradise of God, banished from the tree of life, exiled from the presence of God, which is a foreshadow of the final judgment. 
Physical death and the grave is not the end of the story for the sinner. The ultimate expression of death is eternal judgment. Man, who tried to ascend above the clouds and to be like the Most High, is cast down as low as one can go, even to hell, which is permanent exile from the enjoyment of God's presence. God God created you to enjoy Him. He created you for joy. I don't know if you know that. Not not to be miserable, but to have maximum joy in Him. And hell is an eternal separation from that joy. The joy that, ironically, Adam and Eve had in the garden. But for the rebel, eternal paradise is lost. Eternal hell is coming. And in that way, the crafty beast has killed humanity and is one. So it seemed. But there is a surprising twist to the story. Satan was counting on God's response to man's sin to be judgment. And indeed, judgment comes to Adam and Eve. But judgment also comes to the beast which leads to the final, my final point, which is the coming beast slayer, the coming beast slayer. The fact that Adam and Eve weren't immediately incinerated when they ate of the fruit should have given us a clue right away about the good intentions of God. Yes, God judges the man and woman, but he shows remarkable restraint and kindness because what the serpent did not count on was that the same God who brings wrath and judgment is the same God who brings mercy and compassion and salvation. Adam and Eve are judged and sent into exile, but they are sent out with hope because the climactic centerpiece of God's judgment ends up being not on them, but on the serpent. Verse 14, God curses the serpent. He says, You will go on your belly and eat dust. Now, while a snake literally does that, that language is also used in the Bible figuratively to speak of overwhelming defeat and humiliation. A day of reckoning is coming to the beast, which is spelled out in verse 15. He says, I will put enmity between you and the woman. There's going to be conflict and tension and warfare between the devil and the woman, and also between the devil's offspring and her offspring, between those who follow the ways of the beast in arrogant rebellion and sin, and those who humble themselves and trust and follow God. But all of this struggling and conflict is building to one climactic point. From the woman's offspring will emerge one particular man, and God promises in verse 15 He shall bruise your head, serpent, and you shall bruise his heel. Now, I like how some translate it where it says, he shall crush your head. I like that. It's more violent and just speaks of overwhelming victory. The man will do battle against the serpent, it says in Genesis 3.15, and they will simultaneously strike one another. The serpent will strike his heel, wounding the man, but as he does so, the man's foot will powerfully come down on his head. And folks, the whole remainder of the Bible story is an unfolding of that verse. I I think Genesis 3.15 is one of the most important verses in the whole Bible. And, and I, I believe that it, is just, it, it just unlocks so much. If you read the Bible story with Genesis 3.15 in the back of your head, many more things begin to come, become clear to you. 
So, for example, in the very next chapter, in chapter 4, you see the beginnings of the Genesis 3.15 conflict where Cain, the offspring of the serpent, rises up following in the footsteps of his murderous father, the devil, and kills his righteous brother, Abel. And this enmity, this, this tension, this conflict continues throughout the Bible, whether it's the Egyptians enslaving the Hebrews, the Gentile nations warring against Israel, Haman plotting genocide against the Jews. As the Bible story unfolds, you see lots of enmity and lots of head crushing. Lots of enmity, lots of head crushing. In Numbers 24, Balaam prophesies the overthrow of the wicked nation of Moab through one from the royal line of Israel who will come and, he says, crush the forehead of Moab. In Judges 5, Deborah, the prophetess, praises God for how Jael defeated the wicked Canaanite general Sisera, and Deborah sings, she crushed his head, she shattered and pierced his temple. How's that for a worship song? In 1 Samuel 17, you have David, the seed of the woman, crushing the head of beastly Goliath with a stone. On and on and on it goes, and all of the struggle and all of the head crushing is building towards a climax. And so, Paul writes in Galatians 4.4, when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman. In the fullness of time... Mary, the daughter of Eve, in a stable in Bethlehem, brings forth the long-awaited offspring, and Joseph names him Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. He will suffer a painful blow for his people. He will be betrayed and mocked and beaten and murdered and nailed to a cross by his enemies. And in that moment, in that moment, it seems like the satanic powers are victorious. But folks, Jesus was not a victim. It was actually Jesus' plan to go to the cross because on the cross, he would bear on himself the sins of his people. The sins of doubting his word. The sins of doubting his goodness of doubting His sufficiency, the sin of wanting to make ourselves like the Most High, all of the sins committed in the garden that you and I have committed, sins worthy of the death penalty, worthy of hell. And as a substitute, He would take those sins away from His people and have them placed on His shoulders so that the judgment of death and hell would be turned away from us and fully focused on Christ. He is the substitute who stands in the place of sinners so that any who repent of their sin, repent simply means turn around, around. (laughs) seek to, to not go my way anymore, but seek to go God's way. Anyone who would repent of their sins and trust in Christ alone will find that the judgment of death has been removed from them because that judgment has already taken place in Christ. Which means then that you don't have to go to hell because on the cross, he went to hell for you. To hell and back, you could say, because death has no hold on the innocent man. And so Jesus conquered the grave, walking out of the tomb alive and well. And this is why Genesis 3.15 describes what happens to Jesus as merely a heel wound. Yes, he was wounded, but it was not ultimately 
fatal. But for the serpents, the thing that gave Jesus a minor temporary wound, the cross, is the same thing that crushes the serpent's head and breaks his power. Because it's Jesus' work on the cross that removes the judgment of death from God's people. Satan killed you in the garden, but if you trust in Christ, you will find that Jesus has raised you. Spiritual life has been given to you so that more and more you begin to look less beastly as God's shattered image in you begins to be restored and you increasingly begin to look more and more like him. And and as Jesus rose again to be with God forever, so all who trust in him will likewise be raised from the dead to be with God forever in a place superior to the garden. New heavens and new earth where death will be no more, where all that the beast had instigated will be reversed. As the hymn says, no more let sins and sorrows grow, nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found. And in this, the devil is humiliated and defeated, and his murderous work is destroyed. Hebrews 2 says that Jesus became a man so that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Notice there in that, in that verse That Jesus' death on the cross is not only the means of our deliverance, but also the signal of Satan's imminent demise. Through death, he might not just defeat, but destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil. Now, this does not mean that Satan is a non-entity right now. The Bible warns that the devil is still like a dangerous beast roaming around seeking to devour But the devil is like a beast who is in the throes of death. He knows his time is short. He's going down. Hell is his destiny. But as he's going down, he means to take as many with him as he can. But for those who are in Christ, we ultimately have nothing to fear from him. As Martin Luther wrote, the prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure. One little word shall fell him. I love Christmas. I love decorations, love gathering with family and friends and all that sentimental stuff. But this holiday month at Harbin's, we're going to celebrate what we should love the most about Christmas, which is Christus Victor, the warrior, the king, the champion who has brought light into a dark world, who's come on a mission of violence to confront a serpent, to crush a skull to slay a beast, and to rescue a damsel in distress, his bride, the church. Every Sunday this season, we're going to look at and celebrate this victory from different angles with different scriptures. It's going to be exciting. It's going to be encouraging. But it won't be suspenseful because we already know who wins. A barren cross and an empty tomb tell us where victory lies, which is why Christmas is truly worth celebrating. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word this morning, for feeding us through your word, and through giving us hope. This world has become a dark and twisted place because of sin, and, 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 and we are a dark and twisted people because of sin. 
But we praise God that God so loved the world that He sent His only Son into the world to offer Himself up as a sacrifice for sin so that whosoever would believe in Him should not perish but have eternal life in Him. Father, in the midst of all the craziness of the holiday season, help us to have our minds fixed on this great truth that Your Son is Christus Victor, wins the victory for His people, and that is worth celebrating every day. Father, I pray for any who are in our midst this morning who do not know You, who have not received You as Lord and Savior, who, like Adam and Eve, have sought to go their own way, to exalt themselves above God, to be like the Most High, and determine right and wrong for themselves. Father, I pray that You would use what has been preached this morning to bring about a newness of life, and that perhaps right now someone might receive Christus Victor as Lord and Savior and be changed and forgiven. We pray that You would awaken faith through Your Word. Father, thank You again for Your kindness and generosity and mercy. We are so thankful. In Jesus' name, amen.